Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While the Ethics Committee has reconvened in Ottawa to decide if they should dig deeper into the report on Prime Minister Trudeau and the SNC-Lavalin story, south of the border, Donald Trump's uh, recent foray into divisive politics continues with a lot of negative feedback as a result. And here in Ontario, Doug Ford's Ontario government has released the new sex ed curriculum. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Obviously, the uh, fallout from the uh, ethics commissioner's report is still very much news. Uh, Andrew Scheer continues to hammer away, suggesting he wants a police RCMP investigation into this. Uh, Send a letter to them, even though the RCMP even said a week or so ago that they were going to look into it anyway. Uh, Now we hear that Scheer may actually appear before the ethics committee. Not quite sure exactly what he's got to contribute there, except his opinions. But uh, that seems to be the thrust of things. But a handful of MPs are going to be back on Parliament Hill on Wednesday to decide whether or not to dig deeply into this uh, watchdog's uh, scathing report on how the uh, Prime Minister and his staff handled the SNC live load affair. But has the public already made up their minds on this? Henry Jasek, political uh, professor of political science, of course, at McMaster University, uh, joins us to talk about this morning. Henry, how are you doing today? Just great. We thought August was going to be a quiet month. Yeah. <laughs> well, with an election looming, uh, I guess, you know, that was that's kind of naive. And there's always yeah. stuff going on. But uh, let, let me talk to you about this and, and, the, and the, the impact that this is having right now. And and uh, obviously, we talked a, a couple of days ago about Mr. Dion's report and, and, and the scathing report, I think, is a pretty apt description mm-hmm. of it. But there have been two polls that have come out in the last two days, Henry, that basically have indicated that uh, it's not having much of an impact on, on Canadian voters. No, I, this is, well, there's a, there's a couple of reasons for this. I mean, first of all, it's been in the news quite a bit. Uh, so a lot of information about this has gone out. So uh, for those people who don't like the present government, uh, this gives them uh, some talking points to say, this, is a, this, is, this justifies my view that the government shouldn't be returned to office. And those people who are interested and support the government will, you know, basically take a, a very different opinion and the opinion of the prime minister that he has to uh, follow the public interest. And then he made a judgment, the cabinet made a judgment that uh, his judgment uh, was important for the economy of the country. And people view that as very important in this particular case. So I, I, I think those people who have been interested in this issue have already made up their mind. People who don't care about this issue I'm not so sure they're going to spend much time worrying about this, even as they go to the polls. Do you have, get the impression, though, that, Henry, this happens more and more in politics these days? Uh, obviously, the opposition parties, and, and, and not singularly them, because there's a lot of other people that are concerned about this, uh, and, and they talk about you know integrity and things of this nature, but I, I, I get the sense in talking to, to our listeners, you know, but through social media or through the phones, uh, an awful lot of the time they say, look, they're all the same. It doesn't matter who's in the office, you know. I mean, you know, they complained about the wind government, and now the, the Ford government's been in there for over a year, and they say, yeah, they're doing the same thing. They're just doing it with their people. Uh, it, it seems as if this isn't as big an issue as people want to make it out to be, and by that I mean political integrity. Some people think that's an oxymoronic statement. Well, yes, there, there, certainly you'll you'll get that type of opinion. I think probably there's a bigger type of uh, opinion about this issue out there, and that's it. This is a very complicated issue. Um, for, I mean, you have to go, what's the genesis of the host thing? It's, it's an alleged fraud committed in Libya by a Canadian company a number of years ago. So a lot of people say, Libya, Libya what kind of rule of law do they have in Libya over the last 50 years? 
and it involves a Canadian company. And, and so how, how, you know, what, how should you deal with a company, with a Canadian company who is trying to get contracts there, even if they bent some of the, you know, international rules around it? How should they be dealt with? And that, that was a decision the government made. And uh, a lot of people say that this is just, this is just too complicated. And uh, it's far away from uh, the personal lives of Canadians, although Trudeau said, hey, for those people who, uh, you know, have jobs or, um, uh, you know, depend on uh, the Canadian company for uh, their, their part of their income or hope to, uh, you know, this is, that's a very, he's, he's looking out for those folks. So for those people, it's personal. But for a lot of other people who are, you know, removed from this issue, they're just trying to say, well, how is this important compared to all the other things I've got to worry about? And and that's not to diminish. Okay, there was there are rules and standards, uh, and and it seems as if SNC Lavalin, uh, you know, superseded those rules. We get that, mm-hmm, right. mind you. I can remember when the story broke earlier this year. Uh, I talked to a number of folks in the in the business community who had some knowledge about uh, international business, and they say you don't get work like that in that part of the country, in the world, unless you you do, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, side deals. So, they, in other words, it happens all the time. Right. But but they got caught, and so and that be it as it may. But uh, and again, I guess that's the question I'm asking, and because I'm and again, I'm just trying to read the public opinion on this right now. Is uh, does this really have an impact on on people's lives here in Canada? And the, for the most part, the answer is no. That's right. Mo- most people are, you know, this is very much removed from their lives, and uh, they're interested in, uh, you know, th- their basic household budget, uh, things that go, you know, in their life. Uh, you know, I reckon, you know, they also recognize there's issues that may be more provincial, but the federal government might have an impact, like on uh, health care. And, uh, of course, the federal government's uh, traditionally has spent a lot of money giving uh, to the provinces to deal with health care. So we know health care is a really, really big issue, uh, you know, and, and so the economy. And those are the, those are the big issues. And plus, we have seen, and we've talked about this a little while ago, that the environment has become more and more an issue for Canadians, and part of that, we what we've seen is the you know more and more support for the Green Party uh, because that reflecting people's interests, particularly the younger younger part of the electorate who says, you know, we we really need to do something about the environment. So there's a lot of issues that Canadians worry about before they're going to start worrying about uh, SN. Lavalon and whether how it got a contract in Libya a number of years ago. And I know a lot of people have educated themselves about this and read the stories and read some of the opinion pieces. And there's been no shortage of any of that stuff over course over the last little while. But but I got one email from somebody just yesterday that suggested that very same thing. That this is old news, you know. In other words, if 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 what Andrew Shear wants to see here is outrage, that already happened. Right. And and as you say, the people that don't like uh, the Trudeau government are going to like them even less now. Uh, and that's typical. That's what happens in politics. But I think an awful lot of other people, yeah, they were ticked off about this at the time. And we saw that reflected in the polls. You know, they took about a 10-point dump uh, yeah. at that time, but they've, they've got that all back right now. So I think, uh, I, I, who knows what's going to happen in the election, but I think a lot of people have moved on from this. It's, it's not an issue for them anymore because it doesn't really have any impact on their lives. And also, I think uh, lately the government has come out with a very good argument that I think uh, people who are st- starting to wake up to the fact that they are going to have to have a vote in, um, next in October and the federal election begins next month, that they have to pay attention to things. And the, when and the thing they're you know they're hearing from the government is you know 
we we I we spent a lot of time making sure the economy was healthy, and we've done a good job on it. And a lot of people are hearing that and saying, okay, that's what's important to me, and they're going to evaluate Trudeau's argument that they have been good managers of the economy. And um, the, I just think the opposition parties, unless they can, uh, you know, make a convincing case, they could have done a better job with the economy. That's, I have a feeling that's probably going to wind up to be the number one issue, not the only issue, but I think that's going to be the number one issue in the campaign. And, and, and that's usually the way it is in any event uh, that uh, that becomes the issue. And, you, and people have to understand, and including people who use them, that you know, there are talking points that come up. I mean, you may you know, be opposed to this government for all sorts of reasons, including economic reasons, but you people will grasp onto the talking point. Well, there's a scandal about SNC and Trudeau did the wrong thing and trying to affect the prosecution of this company stuff. But that that's just a talking point. That's not really why they're angry at the government. It's usually something closer to home. Well, I get the sense, and, and I want to go back and, and, and lead on your experience now and the research you've done yeah. over the years, too, uh, that... This, to a certain extent, I, and, and I'm not trying to diminish the, the concern no. with what happened in, you know, with Jody Wilson, Raybald, etc., yeah. but this is kind of inside politics. It's like inside baseball stuff, and, and most people don't pay a whole lot of attention to that. Yeah, and I mean, and a lot of people will look at it, and they, I think, have an understanding. You know, uh, politics, when you're the government, it's a team sport, and the team is the cabinet. Right, and and there's a there's one person who's the head of the cabinet, like the manager of the team. And listen, you you know you either go along with the team, and if you don't like what the team decides, you leave. I mean that's that's the nature of our parliamentary system, and you can't you can't let I mean this in the cabinet you don't can't let one cabinet minister go off and fly solo and do their own thing that the rest of the cabinet doesn't like. There's cabinet solidarity. You know people have to agree that their cabinet colleagues are doing what the cabinet wants. That's, the, that's our, our form of government. And if the cabinet is not doing a good job, we have a, 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 an outlet for it. And it's called a federal election, and it's going to begin next month. So if people really don't like this, if this is really an important issue, they're going to let the government know <laughs> next, in the next two months by throwing them out of office. And they're, they're the ones who are going to make the final judgment. The public has got a lot of information on this, I think uh, you know there's not uh, there's you know these the what went into all of this has not been hidden it, we, there's plenty of press reports and uh, t- discussion about it over, over over the course of this year so we all know what uh, you know what went on here and uh, and so the people will make their decision they'll be informed and they'll decide how important it is I just want to put this in the context uh, from a historical standpoint too and even in the last federal election uh, that government, the Harper government at that time, uh, had no shortage of scandals either, especially sure. the Senate expense scandal. And, and people were actually charged. The RCMP did investigate yeah. that. And, and, of course, Mike Duffy was charged. Others were charged. There was, uh, but I don't get the sense, and I remember that not a whole lot of people use that as one of the main criteria as to how they cast their vote in that election. They were worried, you know, can I afford a house? What are the interest rates like? You know, what's my cost of living? It's 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 issues that impact them when they finally go to vote, and I think they kind of get laser focused on that, and they don't pay a whole lot of attention. I'm sure some people are going to pay attention to this, and some sure. people are going to make their vote based on on this on the Lavalin situation. But I don't think the majority of Canadians pay a whole lot of attention to the sort of the, the inner workings of uh, what happened in Ottawa, for that matter, or for Queens Park either. 
Yeah. Well, I think I, I think you know I I haven't seen a survey exactly on this, but I'm pretty sure I I think what we find if we find people who who think this is the number one issue, I have a feeling the people who would support the prime minister and 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 support the you know a strong SNC Lavalin are are likely to be more important uh, in in that group who thinks this is the major issue of the campaign. To those people who think it's uh, they, that the Trudeau government did something wrong, I, I think th- those people were going to be looking at something else. And so, in fact, this is probably, I think, going to be uh, actually, in, when it all comes down to it, a net winning issue for the government, particularly, you know, defending, saying, hey, we got to defend Canadian companies, we can't put them out of business, even if they, you know, did some misbehaving. And, and there was going to be a certainly certain you know, court things that were going to have to be done. The company was going to have to change its way. It was going to be, you know, supervised by, by, in a court procedure. It was just a different type of court procedure. And when people, you know, when people start to think about that and say, well, you know, these are very technical things. Which court procedure are you going to use to discipline this company? So we're getting down to something that is, you know, a lot of people are just going to say, you know, I, I don't have time for this. Well, and there's a lot of politics involved in this too. Uh, sure. You know, they can talk about ethics, but there's a lot of even the, even the uh, the, lo- the letter that uh, Mr. Shear uh, sent to the RCMP commissioner asking to do this, and of course there was right. a big press release about that, and he got lots of time on national TV doing that. Uh, but the RCMP had already said the week before that that they were looking into it. So why have the letter? Because he wanted to get in front of the cameras and play politics with this, and 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 I get that. That's what happens. I mean. Certainly the Liberals and the NDP did that during the uh, Senate expense scandal when Harper was right. in power as well. So that's going to happen. But there's some realities, I guess, we have to look at here, too. I know that Mr. Shear and others are, are wanting to have Mr. Dion appear before the Ethics Committee, right. and all, and he wants to appear before the Ethics Committee. But Parliament is still in session, and the, uh, the majority of people on that commission are government members, Liberal members. Right. I don't think with an election of just a few weeks away now, Henry, that they're actually going to say, sure, we'll let them do that. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there there is a majority, six of the ten are liberal MPs, and they're not going to allow the ethics commissioner to come before the committee. They're going to say, listen, we have his report. Uh, it's it's in plain sight. You could read it. It's it's clear. Uh, he can, he can give interviews. Uh, there's no no shortage of knowing what the ethics commissioner thinks and and his arguments. So that's that's right in the public. So you know it, it's clear the opposition, particularly the conservatives and the NDP, want to you know basically uh, keep this story alive, hoping that this is going to get them some votes. And uh, you know and and the liberals have a, a different view of it, saying hey. Uh, all the information is out there. We don't want you to keep this story alive. The more important story is the economic uh, management of the government, uh, of, of the economy, and we want to talk about that. And uh, that's the important thing. So, you know, it's, it's basically, you know, an, you know, a pre-election issue, but it's, uh, it's, 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 you know, there, you, depend, it just depends on where you sit on this as to whether you think the, you know, you, you should have that type of hearing uh, at this stage right before an election. Well, they say they're going to meet up in Ottawa today, and I'd be very surprised if they decided to right. do any part of this at all. But uh, we'll certainly see what they're going to say and uh, comment on that as it goes on. Henry, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Okay, very good. Have a good uh, good day. You too. Bye-bye. Henry Jasek, of course, political science professor from McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, south of the border, uh, Donald Trump has showed a fresh willingness to play politics along religious lines once again. 
yesterday he said that uh, American Jewish people who vote for Democrats show, here's the quote, either a total lack of knowledge or great disloyalty. Uh, the inference there is pretty strong, and the pushback on this has been significant. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Barry, good morning. Thanks for the time today. Hello, Bill. We should never be surprised anymore, I guess, about what Trump says. But uh, this this is, is something that crossed the line. And I, I, I watched the reaction and read some of the reaction on this yesterday, but he, he seems to revel in this. Yeah, look, look uh, just, just in the last day, uh, in addition to this one, he's in fact changed positions with regard to um, the um, gun background yeah. checks uh, uh, with regard to Greenland. Hello? Yeah, we're here. Okay. I can I hear the click, too. Clicking on the line. Um, uh, he's, you know, he, he, there's just no impulse control. He's got the attention span of a gnat. Um, and, he, and he just doesn't think about what he says. And then sometimes, freak, not just sometimes, frequently these things come back to bite him, and then he ignores it because he has no sense of shame and thinks he can get away with saying anything anytime anyway. And for a certain segment of the population, that seems to be true, but certainly not a majority. Uh, on this particular one, um, it's not even clear what he means, because what, what, is being, what are Jews being disloyal to? Um, some defenders, because there's been some uh, defenders of him coming out, suggesting that, in fact, they're not being sufficiently loyal to Israel, because Trump it seems to be um, pro-Israel. In, in voting Democratic. Um, but in fact, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because he's been critical of um, Ilan Omar, the uh, Minnesota congresswoman who of Islamic background, for basically making the same charge. Um, the fact is, is that uh, Jews, generally speaking, this long before Trump, have tend to be left of center, not all, but uh, well over two-thirds. Uh, 71% voted um, Democratic in the 16 election. It went up in the midterm elections in, um, in, 20, in 2018. Um, but that's not a, so much a function of Trump. That's just the way Jews, for historical reasons, we can go into it if you'd like, uh, tend to be, have been viewed as outsiders and tend to be less pro-establishment in that particular way. Trump's support of Israel, I would suggest, has little to do with the Jewish community, even though a lot of people will sort of think that's the initial, the initial play. What it really is is dealing with evangelical Christians who tend to have a view that, indeed, when um, Jews control Israel... Uh, that opens a situation where uh, um, the, the, the rapture, I think, is the religious term, where, in fact, uh, Jesus will come back and that they will convert all the Jews in Israel. I don't think most Israelis are seeing it in those terms. No. They're happy for the support. But so when we look at Trump's comments about um, changing the, um, the location of the Israeli embassy for the Americans, um, that's really not so much. I, I'm sure he's happy to have Jewish support, too. But the Jewish uh, vote in America is a little over 2% of the, the population. The um, evangelical vote is closer to 25% of the population. It's, it's quite clear what his particular orientation is. What I think Trump is really talking about, and not just on this issue but on so many others, is, is totally personal. Uh, the notion of loyalty is loyalty to him. Um, he, uh, he looks at everything as, as a transactional kind of consideration. And um, if you support Trump, that's good, and that's truth. And if you're not supporting Trump, that's fake news. Um, anyway, that, that, that's certainly my, my initial take on with what's motivating him. I think it's harmful in many ways, um, just as, in fact, the comments of Ilan Omar. I mean, he, he wants to transform the Democratic Party to seem to be an extension of Ilan Omar and uh, Octavio, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, writ large, these four freshmen congressmen. He wants because he thinks it's better for him politically if they are the face of the Democratic Party rather than the, the leaders of the Democratic Party. I don't think it's going to be particularly successful in the long term, 
but it certainly is disruptive. I don't think it does any good for the Jewish community, for Israel to be seen as a point of division. The pro-Israel people in America have been very happy with the fact that, by and large, support for Israel, not totally, but has been bipartisan. It hasn't been an issue that Democrats and Republicans differ. Uh, Trump is trying to make it uh, an issue. Not so much, as I say, for the Jewish vote, although he'd be happy to have Jewish votes too, but more so because of the fact he's very concerned about maintaining the evangelical vote. And that's tied up with a whole lot of religious stuff that I don't particularly buy into, but nonetheless, a number of people, including some of your listeners, I'm sure believe. There's there's another element to this, too, I wonder, Barry, because this seems to follow along the same narrative, the anti-Muslim narrative that he started many years ago. And as you say, the the whole concept of trying to paint the Democratic Party uh, by this, what he calls the gang, uh, these people that are outspoken, and they're outspoken about the way that the Palestinians are being treated. Uh, and an awful lot of Americans agree with that. But it, it's it's just as, as soon as he seems to say, okay, that's what I want to do, that's the message I want to get across, he essentially makes things up to try to substantiate that message. Loves to have fights with everybody, in his party, outside of his party. Uh, look, um, the Middle East situation is a mess. It's a mess in part because of Israeli government actions, but it's certainly a mess because of Palestinian actions. They had the opportunity for state in 1948. They chose, in fact, to have a war, which they lost, and they subsequently had a series of other wars, which they lost. As recently as 2000, um, Bill, just at the end of his term, Bill Clinton, in fact, negotiated or was trying to negotiate a deal. It was located, uh, Taba was the location of the, um, of the negotiations that would, in fact, have created a Palestinian state, including um, a good chunk of East Jerusalem. Um, and, in fact, that was turned down by Arafat, who subsequently then had an intifada. Uh, so I'm, I'm not here to um, whitewash all the actions of, um, of Netanyahu. He is not my particular favorite within the context of Israeli politics. But the uh, Palestinians have made a series of blunders, being uncompromising, that have led to the situation that they're, they're, it, it's, it's in a sad state now. I'm not even sure a two-state solution is possible, although there's lots of rhetoric with regard to that. But uh, people have to compromise, and uh, we, we now have an Israeli government, certainly under Netanyahu, who is not particularly inclined to make compromises. I don't think uh, Netanyahu would even accept the terms that um, Barak had accepted 20 years ago. Uh, but fortunately, from his perspective, Arafat turned it down. I, I don't think the um, Palestinians would get that same deal now, even if they asked for it and they turned it down at that time. So, again, fault with regard to the Palestinian situation is on both sides. I don't want to suggest one side is white and the other side is black. They both, there are problems on both sides. But there's a need for compromise, and we haven't seen that lately on either side. Historically, there had been some uh, more compromise on the Israeli side, but that's from leaders who are long gone. Netanyahu, in fact, has emerged in Israel in large part as a result of Palestinian and Arab transigence, intransigence, rather. So, anyway, we're not going to solve the Middle East solution this morning, but the, um, all I'm suggesting is to think that one side is good and one side is bad in looking at the Middle East, I think, is, is, is inappropriate. Even with your comments, are you, I, I would venture to say that Donald Trump probably doesn't know half of what you've just explained there. Cause, and I don't think he cares much about what's going on in the politics of the Middle East, but he gravitates to people who say he's wonderful. And Netanyahu plays up to that. So all of a sudden, he's Netanyahu's best friend. Sure, Netanyahu's playing him just like uh, Putin is playing him, just like Kim in North Korea is playing him. He gives up nothing. for He gets nothing for America for all these various uh, things that he, he, he makes. Uh, he's talking about uh, including Russia in the, uh, in the G8 without getting anything from Russia. The reason Russia was kicked out of the, uh, the G8 was that because of their, their, um, their takeover um, in, in, in the Ukraine. Um, he just doesn't think anything through. And um, again, he's profoundly ignorant about so many things. 
but uh, but that's the st- the strange narrative that seems to be happening here. In other words, it's all it's really not about trying to find a peaceful solution to the Middle East. I would think Barry, he's just uh, he he's looking after his own political hide here, and he just wants to, you know, he demonizes anybody who doesn't support him, and 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 praises anybody who's uh, on his side, and that's what he seems to be doing here. Uh, the comments are outrageous, uh, and of course they've already been downplayed by a number of organizations. The Jewish American organizations, a number of them, have already commented about this, but. I'm not hearing anything from anybody on, on the Republican side about this. The, the, the silence is deafening every time this guy goes over the line. Well, the Republicans are afraid of him because he is popular within the Republican base. Look, um, he's in many ways unfit to be president, not just because he's, he, he doesn't read and because he, frankly, has no intellectual curiosity. What's surprising to me is that there are so many people supporting him, enough not to be a majority. And I don't, right now, I don't think he's poised to be reelected. The world can change if the Democrats screw up their election campaign and become seen as too radical. But um, the, the fact that so many Republicans are afraid of him, uh, particularly elected officials, that all he has to say is boo and that they lose their political credibility and won't be renominated, that's what's keeping, uh, they have no backbone, and that's what's leading to the situation. I am hopeful and optimistic that after 2020 we will have a different administration in Washington, but anything is possible. And frankly, the Democrats can't go too radical with their policies because Trump is looking to cast them in the image of Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders. I don't think Bernie Sanders is likely to be the nominee. But if he were the nominee, I think the Republicans might very well end up winning the election. I'm not sure at the moment. I don't think that's about to happen, but lots of things can happen between now and November of 2020. Well, and you can see the way, he, again, he's trying to, to draw the narrative here and, and, and characterize the Democratic Party. Uh, how many times has he used the word socialist? Uh, and that's a bad word, apparently, south of the border, uh, notwithstanding the fact that millions of Americans get Social Security and other benefits from governments. But uh, to be a socialist is wrong. And he's trying to indicate right now that that whole political party uh, is represented by those three ladies. And, uh, and I, I guess his base is buying that. Well, that's his plan. Um, I mean, it's not enough for him to win to have his base buy it. It's, he's got to have swing voters buying it. And in fact, little by little, they're eroding. He's down now to 40 percent. And there have been a number of trial runs in public opinion polls recently that suggest he's losing not just to Biden. He's losing to Biden by a bigger margin, but he's losing to other people as well. Uh, but in fact, he has a lot of money to, to frankly, you know, try to inform and um, misinform public opinion between now and the election. I think it's going to be a very dirty campaign. People are going to, uh, and you're, you're certainly going to see uh, him making the charge of socialism. I think it's, it's much more difficult with somebody like Biden or a m- more moderate figure than with Bernie Sanders, who in fact is a self-proclaimed socialist, um, and in fact suggesting that, um, that they're prepared to, um, to abolish the, the role of uh, private health care in the U.S., which about half of the American population uses. I think that's a political loser. I don't think it would happen anyway because it would never get through Congress. But the Democrats have to be smart politically as well. They can't just rest on the fact that, um, that Trump's making a fool of himself because among his supporters, um, they don't see it that way. The, the real question is whether the charges of socialism resonate. If the Democrats act in a way to help facilitate the Republican charges, then the election in 2020 becomes much more of a toss-up. And, and on Trump's side of this, as these comments seem to indicate, uh, you know, he's, what he's doing right now is going to the base and simply saying, okay, I've got to play to them, which he does at every rally anyway, and, yeah. and, and that's essentially it. Uh, and, and what got lost in, I guess, in the narrative yesterday, and I'm glad you brought it up, Barry, was the fact that he's backtracking on the statement he made after the shootings, you know, about, about more you know, aggressive background checks. And now, essentially, after a couple of weeks of talking to the NRA, I guess he said, no, we're not going to go there. 
Yeah, oh, look, yeah, n- another example was with regard to, uh, to tax cuts, payroll tax cuts, because of the, he wants to claim that the economy is stronger than ever, but in fact, uh, he, they're worrying and they're thinking about uh, adjusting tax cuts in that regard, too. But that, that's just the last day. I mean, every day there's a whole new set of things that he's changed his mind on. He just has no institutional memory, and he doesn't <clears throat> seem to believe that it matters what he says, because his supporters will uh, agree with him anyway. It's, it's really like a cult. You know, in, in a cult... The, the followers just adopt and basically park their brains at the candy counter and just buy into anything the leader says. That's the Republican Party, increasingly among their base, is becoming a cult where they don't care what he says. It's, that's truth and that he, whatever he says goes. Um, I, it's not good for America and it's not good for so many other communities. Look, we haven't even talked about the, um, the refugees at the border, which is a, a tragic situation. They're just things that are going on that are, are totally out of control in America and A good chunk, not a majority, but a good chunk of the American population seems to be quite happy to abide by it and just uh, support support Trump regardless. Well, as long as uh, you know things in their backyard are doing fine, if they've got a job and they they're able to make the payments and get everything else done, uh, let's face it, there's a lot of people. It's not just strictly Americans; it happens up here too. That don't pay a whole lot of attention to what's going on in other parts of the country and don't pay much attention to politics either. There are recessions in the world. It's, uh, Germany apparently is, is moving into recession now, and there's other countries. Uh, and uh, indeed, we, tariffs are another issue. He does, has no sense of how tariffs work. He thinks that, in fact, that's a cash grab for Americans, when, in fact, it's, it's really a tax on Americans that are buying the products that are being, having the tariffs. The economies are, are slowing down internationally. It's still okay in the U.S. It's still okay in Canada. Um, but our economy is going to be very much connected. If the Americans start to slip, we're going to be affected too because so much of our economy is integrated with them. Uh, to think that America can just sort of stand aside while the rest of the world burns um, and w- won't be affected economically, I think is mis- misunderstood. Uh, but Trump doesn't seem to have much sense of economics any more than he does of politics of the Constitution. Well, and there's one of the, the dichotomies here, too. He's saying that, you know, this, this is the best economy the Americans have ever had, but he's, he's chasing the feds right now for, you know, to drop their rates, and he wants the, the, this, uh, as you say, this payroll tax thing. So, in other words, if things are that good, then why do we need that? So, or they, why do they need that sort of thing? So, he, uh, it, uh, typical of Trump, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth yeah, here. but if you don't pay attention to what he says and you just support him anyway, you know, it, it doesn't much matter. There's a phrase that... Um, uh, the, one of the uh, right-wing, uh, ta- ta- Rush Limbaugh, uh, talks about dittoheads, people that just agree with him. And there's some pride in his, his listeners talking about the fact that if Rush says it, it's got to be true. That's basically what's become of many people, not all, but many people within the Republican Party. But there is a risk and that the Democrats can sit back and just say, look, this guy's screwing up so much, we just have to waltz in here and we're going to win this thing. I mean, they've still got to win the hearts and minds of an awful lot of people. Yeah, and they're going to be subject to attacks, and Trump's probably going to have more money to advertise than they are, although they're going to have money too. Um, uh, look, this isn't over as it terrible as it is, and right now the polls are sliding for the Republicans. But there's going to be a lot of negative advertising, some of it perhaps coming from Russia. Um, um, or Falun Gang, uh, the, um, the, this, uh, this Chinese religious group that apparently is one of the principal advertisers on Facebook. Uh, th- this ain't over. Uh, there's going to be a lot of talk and there's going to be a lot of negative charges. That's basically, Trump, pe- Trump knows people don't like him, but in fact he feels he can dirty up the opposition as effectively as he did with Hillary Clinton last time. He won kind of on a fluke, certainly he won with fewer votes because of the, uh, the disproportionate allocation, the fact that California and New York were so um, pro-democratic that that's why they had huge margins there that all, and the other states were very close. I'm still optimistic and hopeful that the um, 
Democrats will win the next election. But they can't be stupid about it. They cannot allow themselves to be portrayed any more radically than necessary. Trump will do everything he can to undertake that, to categorize this as socialism versus free enterprise. Um, and they've got to stick to it. I'm, I'm hopeful that, in fact, the world will be a little bit better in a year and a half. But nothing is certain. Well, and you talked about the possibility of recession. I mean, an awful lot of economists are, are not even debating whether or not it's going to happen. They're debating when it's going to happen. Uh, they're, they're kind of running against the clock here, aren't they? Because most of them are saying maybe 2021, but maybe 2020. And if it's having an impact on, on people then, it's probably going to have an impact on how they vote. Yeah. Uh, Trump will blame it all on the media. I mean, again, uh, on the Fed, uh, those are his appointees. I mean, that's the irony of all this. Some of the people he's accusing uh, are, are, in fact, his appointees. And that's a reflection on what he's doing, if, in fact, one took him seriously. Uh, Powell, the, the head of the, uh, the Federal Reserve, is, is, is the, the most recent example of somebody being targeted. But uh, the Republican uh, elected officials in Congress just shut, shut up because, in fact, they're afraid of being targeted as a few others. A few people have spoken out against him have lost their seats. And that's kind of its fear that's, that's sort of keeping this whole thing going on the part of the Republicans. Long way to go uh, before they, they start casting ballots, not until November, of course, of, uh, of 2020. Barry, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. We'll talk again. Thanks. You betcha. Barry Kay, of course, from uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, earlier today, around 8 o'clock in the morning, the uh, Ford government released uh, their new curriculum. That's uh, obviously being referred to uh, here in the news as the sex ed curriculum, but the official title is the Health and Physical Education Curriculum, uh, of which sex ed, of course, is going to be part of it. Uh, this replaces the outdated one that the Ford government had put in place uh, when they scrapped uh, the one that was done by the Wynn government, of course, probably because it was from the Wynn government. Now, there was, as you mentioned during the campaign, an awful lot of negative reaction from uh, a lot of social conservative groups saying that uh, this was wrong to be talking about these sorts of things with little kids. Uh, now, I haven't read this the, the new curriculum yet. I've seen the overview. I've read some of the details on this, and it looks very, very familiar to the one that they scrapped with a couple of different changes. Uh, to try to get a read on this and some uh, feedback, we're pleased to welcome to the program Carly Bassian, uh, BAMT sexual health educator, uh, who's had led a number of workshops on uh, the sex ed curriculums and uh, been part of the discussion over the last little while. Carly, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, give me your read on what you've seen so far about the, the new curriculum and, and, and whether or not it hits the mark. Yeah, so I spent my morning coffee reading the curriculum this morning and was pleasantly surprised to see that there really has not been a whole lot of change if you compare the 2019 health and phys ed curriculum, specifically the human development and sexual health piece, to uh, the previous one. So, um, you know, there are some changes that are worth noting um, in terms of changing some of the topics, um, moving them to earlier grades, moving them to later grades, removing some topics entirely. But really, overall, not a whole lot of change. Yeah, as, as I reading the overview here, and I, I, I'm getting the same conclusion that uh, that it begs the question: Then why'd you scrap the other one? I mean, obviously there was a political reason for that because he was obviously trying to to, to curry favor with a certain part of his political base. I get that, but mm -hmm. but now that they've and and of course they use the example of uh, you were part of these discussions. Of course, well there was no public consultation. Well, of course there was uh, from mm -hmm. the previous government. So I mean that that stuff was all really just political fluff that was in there. But now when push comes to shove. Uh, I, I'm looking at this and saying it seems to hit the mark. The, I guess the one big thing uh, that people are, are talking about these days is the opt-out portion of this. and Because uh, yes. that was, uh, I think if I am explaining this correctly, under, under the previous one, and I, I want to forget about the one they had in place right now because that was a stopgap and, and ill-advised idea. 
but mm-hmm. to the previous curriculum, they pretty much left it up to the boards about opting out, didn't they, as to whether or not uh, the boards themselves were going to develop a policy on that? That's correct. So depending on the school board, each school board seemed to have its own unique opt-out policy for students to opt out of any class, not just sex ed. Uh, it could be for any sort of class. But what's interesting, and this, this immediately stood out to me as I reviewed the document this morning, is that there's a very explicit excerpt for parents, teachers, and principals to let them know that parents do have the option to opt their child out of any sexual health class. So what's really concerning about that is that there's actually now five strands in the health and phys ed curriculum. They've added a mental health literacy curriculum piece, which is fantastic. But the only strand that a parent has the right to opt their child out of is sex ed. So that is a very explicit hidden agenda um, that's, you know, very clear to read between the lines. So it's a little concerning to see that now it is a provincially mandated policy, not at the individual school board level, that a parent does have the right to take their kid out of sex ed. And, and by the way, I'm glad you made that distinction because I know this has been, I think, mischaracterized by an awful lot of people. Uh, you know, this, this is a health curriculum. Sex ed is only part of it, and they only teach that part of the year. Exactly. So the sex ed curriculum only makes up about 10% of the entire health and phys ed curriculum. It's actually a very tiny portion, relatively speaking. Uh, and, and that's the part that they are, they are allowed to opt out of? That's correct. Now, where are some of the issues that, uh, that were introduced in, in the previous curriculum? Uh, or where are they uh, vis-a-vis the sex ed part or the health part? I mean, I could try to make that distinction. Because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking about the things like bullying and things of that nature that, that were included in this. And, and um, uh, there was some concern about whether or not those were going to be included. I know they are. Mm-hmm. But, but my impression is, is that that's in the, in the quote-unquote health part of it, and the, the students won't be able to opt out of that. That's a, 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 it's a lesson they need to learn anyway, and I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that they're going to have to be in the classroom. That should be a mandatory part of the curriculum. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I haven't looked at the full document in, in detail, but from what I can see, they have a pretty, uh, they've done a pretty good job at interweaving different subjects throughout the health curriculum, not just in the sex ed piece. So, bullying would come up in injury uh, prevention. That's one of the strands in the curriculum itself. Um, so, teachers need to be a little bit creative um, if there's a specific criteria, a specific expectation in the health, um, sexual health component, there are ways to introduce that into other areas of the curriculum as well. I'm looking at some of the other controversial issues that uh, were left out when they decided to scrap this. And one was the uh, the whole concept of consent, uh, mm-hmm. which, which I, and, and again, there was some concern that, look at that, I don't think you can teach, you're never too young to learn about that, that no means no in whatever it is that yeah. you're trying to deal. Uh, and that's going to be done, uh, I guess, at an early age, as is grade one, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct. So that's actually one of the um, the positive outcomes of this revision. I have noticed that consent is much more explicit in the curriculum. It appears significantly more compared to the last uh, curriculum. So in uh, the 2015 curriculum, the first time consent was explicitly mentioned as a specific expectation in the curriculum itself was grade eight. But we're now seeing this introduced as early as grade one. So that's actually a really big victory. And I, I am happy to see that in this new curriculum document. Yeah, because it, it develops an attitudinal approach, I guess, to, to relationships relationships with people. And, and like I say, you're never too young to learn that. That's, that's, that can be a foundation for everything as you go through elementary school. Absolutely. And I mean, when consent is introduced in grade one, it certainly is not in the context of sexual activity. We are not having conversations in grade one about sexual activity. The way that the curriculum document is structured is that it's laying a foundation so what we can build on it. So by the time we get to the middle school grades, grade seven, grade eight, 
students have a very strong understanding of some of the basic concepts of sexual health. So as you mentioned, consent, that's something that a junior kindergarten student should be learning, that if you want to play with your friend, you want to give them a hug, you want to share a toy, you have to ask first. And if they say no, you have to respect that. How much uh, flexibility will the teachers have in delivering this? You know, a lot of people ask me that, and, you know, to be perfectly honest, there's no curriculum police, and I I often say this. So at the end of the day, regardless of what curriculum documents are out there, it really is up to the principal if they want to be checking in to make sure that their teachers are on track and creating lesson plans and unit plans that follow the curriculum. So there are teachers that when the 1999 curriculum was reintroduced temporarily, a lot of my teacher colleagues said, you know what, I'm still going to teach to the 2015 curriculum because it's in my students' best interest to make sure that they're getting information to make healthy choices. So whether or not teachers will really follow this, I don't know. Uh, It really depends teacher to teacher, if I'm being perfectly honest. Uh, yeah, and, and there's a line here that I wanted to get a comment from you on, too. It says, teachers can use their professional judgment in addressing topics that go beyond the core elements here. For instance, uh, proper names of body parts and things of this nature. Uh, and I know that there were some parent groups that were complaining that, uh, that you know, the, the, the previous curriculum was far too explicit about things of this nature. Uh, mm-hmm. And obviously, is this going to be up to the teacher as to what they're going to do or how they're going to do this? Yes, and this has always been the case. It's just a little bit more explicit now, but teachers are bound by ethical guidelines, and we have to constantly use our professional judgment to introduce a topic at a certain time. So an example I'd like to give, um, in grade three in the last curriculum document, one of the expectations is that students would understand the difference between gender identity and sexual orientation. They've now pushed this back to about grade five, I believe, in the new curriculum document, so it's introduced a little bit later. If you have a grade two student that comes to class and introduces their mummy and their mummy and they have a same-sex family, is the teacher really going to shy away from that? I really discourage that. I think that it's important to be having those conversations about different family types and different family structures. So that way it's not a taboo topic. It's something that we normalize and just integrate into our day-to-day conversations. I want to get... What role do parents play in this? Uh, uh, you know, with with so many other different subjects, you figure, okay, that's where you go to school to learn. Because uh, mm-hmm. when I was talking with the previous government, the education minister at that time, uh, when they introduced the, the, the program that was eventually scrapped, uh, they, they made this the point a number of different times in our conversation that, look at this, this is educational, sure, but the parents have to have some input into this, too. In other words, uh, to, the, there was, I, I think, an, an attempt to try to show some respect for, for the, the, the mores that may have, and, and religious things that uh, you know principles that may be involved in the family. So, mm-hmm. in other words, you're going to learn core stuff here, but obviously you're also going to be influenced by what you hear at home. Absolutely. And so one of the pieces that's in the process of the curriculum document, not only for the 2019, but this also appeared in the 2015 document, is that there is uh, a whole piece about encouraging parents to have conversations with their kids at home before even talking about it at school. Because absolutely, teachers understand this. We need to respect the diversity of our families. And every family has different opinions and beliefs and religious practices that impacts the way that we have conversations about sexual health. And a teacher is never in the position to say whether or not a family is right or wrong in their views. The role of the teacher is just to provide a neutral uh, standpoint of sexual health information. So absolutely, it is encouraged in the document. 
the curriculum document for parents to have conversations at home with their kids in a way that they feel comfortable with. And it's actually, it's better to start those conversations at home. So it's not as alarming. It's not as anxiety provoking for the parents, the teachers and the students when it comes time to having conversations about sexual health. And the curriculum document, it's a free publicly available document on the Ministry of Education's website. I've also posted it on my Twitter if people want to take a read through. And I encourage parents to take a look to see what they can expect their kids to learn about in grades one through eight in this upcoming school year and start having those conversations at home ahead of time. From what you've read so far, Carly, are you comfortable with this document and the approach that they're taking on this? I would say yes. I was definitely more concerned. I think that we have taken, you know, three steps back, but I was expecting closer to 20 steps back. So I think that teachers can work with what we have. There definitely is room for improvement, but this curriculum document is fairly up to date and really not a whole lot different from the 2015 document itself. Because one of the things I was concerned about here was to go back to, you know, as you say, the bad old days where, you know, okay, there might be at some point in the curriculum a discussion about body parts, for instance, uh, but they don't talk about feelings and emotions and, and, and things of that nature. And, and I'm, I'm glad from what I've seen so far that they're incorporating that in there. And, and hopefully this is going to be a, a catalyst for, con- I guess, some sort of a conversation in the classroom uh, among students and teachers to, to kind of, you know, tell everybody how they feel and how this is uh, impacting them. Absolutely. And the fact that there's now an entire strand dedicated to mental health literacy, I am so impressed by that. I don't think there are many provinces across Canada that have an explicit uh, strand designated to mental health. So I think that that's a really wonderful and natural opportunity for teachers to start having conversations about emotions and feelings and mental health and how that connects to sexuality as well. There's no hard line here. You know, we keep talking about, the, okay, there's the health element and here's the sexual education part of this. Uh, you can't have one without the other. They're so interwoven, aren't they? Absolutely. And what I tell teachers is that we can't tell a student to leave part of their identity at the door when they walk into the class at the end of the day. Teachers are encouraged to tend to what we call the whole student, the entire student experience, and that includes their physical health, their mental development, their spiritual development, and also their sexual development. Because like it or not, we are, as human beings, sexual beings, and we do experience development. And it's important to provide information so that way when kids are going through all these rapid changes that may not make sense and can be very scary, they'll have information to make better sense of it. Uh, but there's going to be questions, and, and there are going to be people that are going to you know, have, have some feelings and some emotions. How do you create an environment for the student where they can feel free to talk about that openly and, and without f- fear of criticism? I know, I know that can be part of the bullying aspect of, of the curriculum, I suppose, uh, yeah. because they're always going to be afraid of, of, of pushback or people that are going to think badly of them because of something like this. But it, it, that's always a difficult aspect, I guess, when, when I talk to teachers is to, to try to get students to be open and forthcoming with their feelings and emotions. Absolutely. And I mean, as a sexual health educator myself that does this for a living, when I have my little cousins come to me asking questions, it's so it's so uncomfortable. And it's just it is something that as we just naturally respond with this uneasiness because it's so uncomfortable. So the way to overcome that is really to establish a trusting relationship with your classroom. That's why teachers don't often delve into the sex ed curriculum the first week of September. I I strongly discourage that because you're not going to get students engaged. That's why we tend to see sexual health introduced a little bit later on after the school year has begun. So that way the teacher can really work on developing a trusting relationship with their students, creating a safe space, a non-judgmental space. And that way, when it comes time to starting to have conversations about sexual health, they'll feel a lot more comfortable to approach their teachers, approach their peers to have conversations that are judgment-free and safe. 
one of the stated goals here, obviously, is education, uh, you know, to, to learn about this and, and to learn how to handle emotions and understand emotions and things of this nature. But one of the other major parts of, of the dialogue that was going on previously when they were trying to do this uh, was the aspect of bullying and, and violence mm-hmm. uh, in schools. Uh, do you feel that this curriculum, as it's being presented uh, today, is, is going to cover that? Is it going to check that box and, and hopefully reduce some of those numbers that we've seen? I haven't really looked at the other injury prevention strand, but that's where the focus would be on that. But I did notice in the sexual health strand, they still have in, in, sorry, integrated um, some language and uh, topics about online safety and making sure that we're using the internet in a safe way. And that absolutely lends itself very well to the fact that students often use online platforms to engage in bullying. So that's an opportunity for teachers to make sure that if they are using online social media platforms, they're doing so responsibly. And and that makes sense. As a matter of fact, I, I go so far as to say, if I look at that clause of this, it's actually probably an improvement over the other one because they're going to start teaching that younger than at a younger grade uh, than the previous uh, curriculum did. Uh, and and given the fact that almost everybody these days has some sort of a phone or a computer or something like this, the, the sooner they learn that stuff, the better. Oh, absolutely. So when does this start now? Have you get any indication? I mean, does, uh, the school year is, is just a couple of weeks away right now. Do they start incorporating this immediately? Yeah, so that's an interesting piece about the fact that they just decided to release the curriculum now. It's very strategic. It does not give teachers a lot of time to prepare and lesson plan. But yes, it, it, it does take effect immediately. Uh, there's going to be pushback. You know there's going to be pushback from some parents that are going to say, well, you haven't done anything here. And, you know, the concerns that we raised, meaning those parents, uh, were never addressed. I know Tanya Granick-Allen, who was one of the biggest critics of the uh, the previous curriculum, uh, has already gone on record as saying that uh, uh, that the, the government here has, has blown it. They, they promised to stop all this stuff. Uh, she used the characterization, of course, that they were forcing students to learn about gender identity uh, and theory in the classrooms, and, and that's still in the curriculum, and that's a good thing. So mm-hmm. there, there's always going to be critics. We get that, and there's always going to be some people that are opposed to this. But the fact that they, if they feel that strongly about it, have the option to, to opt out of this, that part of the curriculum anyway, I think pretty much diffuses those criticisms, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And uh, another rebuttal I like to use is that there's this concern that if we're talking about sexual health and sexual identity and gender identity and all these pieces that get thrown around, that immediately it's going to make our students, make our kids change their identity. But if you look at the drug abuse curriculum, that's a part of the health curriculum, there doesn't seem to be the same concern that if we're talking about making healthy choices around drug use, we don't expect them to start using drugs. The same applies with sexual health. When we talk about sexual health to students, it doesn't immediately make them want to have sex. It doesn't immediately make them question their identity. It's just giving them information so when they are faced with, you know, the opportunity to engage in a certain behavior or if they're questioning their identity, they'll be able to make sense of it. And it's, again, all because we want students to be safe and healthy. And we have to remind ourselves that is the intention here, nothing else. Well, because for so many generations, uh, before they even attempted to try to craft something like this together, uh, the, the, the sexual education that an awful lot of students got back in those days was, was from classmates, or, you know, hearsay mm-hmm. information, and not always correct, of course, and, and that's how I think a lot of those myths uh, started to generate, and certainly we were manifested, and it's, it's taken us generations to try to diffuse a lot of those. Absolutely. And that's what I remind parents is, would you rather your kid learn from their friend about sex or would you rather them learn from an educated, trusted adult? I think most people would take the latter. Well, we'll uh, watch for the feedback once the school year starts in just a couple of weeks. Uh, Carly, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. 
Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Good Take talking care. with you again. Uh, Carly Bassian, of course, a sexual health educator, with her comments about the curriculum that was uh, released just a couple of hours ago now. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.